Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend Chavruta Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Masach Shkalim, daf Zion, page 7. I'm going to wish everybody a Moedim Simcha whenever you're hearing this. If you've just come out of a first day of Yantif in Israel, or you're coming off of a two-day Yantif in Chutzars, anywhere else in the world, I hope everybody is having a wonderful Pesach, and we are so happy to continue learning with you. Um, our... Daf here includes a, a Mishnah, a Halacha, Halacha Hey, that is springboarding off of the Mishnah, Yerdena, that you read from yesterday. There, it was talking about what happens to the funds, you know, if you have any leftover funds after the designated funds. I actually spoke about this as well in terms of, you know, what happens if you have more coins than your Machatita Shekel. So that was yesterday. Today, we're talking, the, the Gemara is talking about Motar shvuyim shvuyim motar shavui shavui. What is this? If you have collected money to free some captives, right? Because unfortunately there was this phenomenon, right? Of kidnapping captives and then charging a ransom. And then are you going to pay the ransom? So they would collect the money to free the captives. What happens if you have, and, and, and instead of collecting a specific number, they would just go and get as much funds as they could, I suppose. And this is somewhat speculation on my part, but that is the discussion here, right? When you have leftover money from the money that was collected, motar shvuyim, la shvuyim, that was collected for the shvuyim, for the captives, motar shavui, la to shavui. The leftover money, right, that was collected to free a specific person is then given as a gift to that person, to that person who had been captive. And then... What if it was collected uh, as charity for the poor? Meaning you've collected money that's going to go to tzedakah, to poor people. You collected money for a specific poor person, then you allocate that same money, you know, even if it was more than you originally intended to give, you give it as a gift to the poor person. So what happens if you've collected money to bury the dead, right? This is, we know, is a very sincere and important mitzvah. And so then that money has to be allocated to be used for burying the dead, meaning it's all kind of like truth in advertising. This is what the money was collected for, and that's what it goes for. And if you have extra money that you, beyond what you need to pay to release the captive, okay, but the money is still going to the captive, or you've collected more money than you expected for the tzedakah, okay, but it's still going to the same person. Likewise, here, the money that is collected to bury the dead goes to be for that purpose uh, but the leftovers if there's any leftovers after you've done this you know the paid for the burial or the tachrichim, the shrouds whatever it is then you give any extras to the to that person's heirs right to the people who will inherit from the person who has died Rabbi Meir has a really different approach he says well it's not so clear right is it so clear that you give to the to the heirs, or what else should you do? So he says, take that money and put it in a safe place until Eliyahu comes. What does it mean until Eliyahu comes? We've talked, we've mentioned this before, right? The idea is that when Eliyahu comes, you know, comes to announce Mashiach or whatever, he's going to come back and he's going to, it's not that he's going to establish a different halacha, but he's going to answer all of these questions. And that's why we've said in the past when we come across the, the concept of a teku, tough yud kuf vav, Right, teku really means like leave it hovering in abeyance. Right, we're gonna we're gonna leave that question without an answer. But it is um, 
it is interpreted to mean tishbi yavol vitaretz kushiot, something like that. Kushiotu bayot. That he that Tishbi, right? Tishbi is Eli Eliyahu Hanavi, Eliyahu Hatishbi, right? He was from Tishbi. So that he will come and answer these questions. So the idea here is Rabbi Meir's position is he's not going to take a position on who should get the, any leftover money after the burial is paid for. Instead, set it be a, you know, put it in escrow until Eliyahu comes. Rabbi Nathan Omer, Motar Hamet, Bonilo Nefesh Al Kivro. So Rabbi Nathan says differently. He says, with that leftover money, you know, again, for, for a, someone who has died, they should rather build a, and it's here called a nefesh, bonino nefesh, but it means a monument, like some kind of particularly impressive matseva, headstone, tombstone, whatever, on the person's grave for him. Now, I, I don't know enough to know whether this is really ghoulish or if it's really a big honor. I think a lot of this question of what does it mean? What do you do with any leftover money and you're going to, you know, erect a mausoleum? I think there's a cultural uh, element here as to whether that's considered a big honor or whether that's kind of grisly. Um, in my, my knee-jerk reaction is it's a little bit morbid, meaning, well, the whole conversation is morbid, but it's a little bit grisly. But I also think that if you come from, and I don't just mean cultural, like what are my predilections, but I think that within Judaism, we have different practices amongst I mean burial practices amongst the different segments of the of the world Sephardim, Ashkenazim, Yemenites you know whatever from all different parts of the, the world and so I think that different people think that what you do at a grave um, is either more ornate or less ornate depending on where our traditions have come from I, obviously that's not the case necessarily in the time of the Mishnah but for now well, I think this really is a Mishnah that's telling us what's the halachic approach to, you know, charity surplus. And I think these are things that many different societies, governments have always had to grapple with. And it's interesting to see that, you know, it it's codified in a Mishnah what exactly it is that you do that, you know, and again, it's not based on Pesukim necessarily. It's just more. But the rabbi still felt this was something that they should at least comment on. Um, I'm going to move on to what I thought was a great story um, on this stuff. And, um, you know, when they were talking about the surplus of having, you know, that you should build this dead person, you know, some type of monument, right? Tani, they learned in another Brisa, right? We don't make monuments for the righteous. Right? Their words are their memorial. And so once they get say that and sort of declare that they tell this very interesting story about Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan So Rabbi Yochanan would lean on Rabbi Chia Bar Abba as he went walking. So Rabbi Yochanan, we've seen this before in the Gemara, was a rather large person and he somehow needed to lean on Rabbi Chia Bar Abba uh, to walk. Rabbi Eliezer, uh, and Rabbi Eliezer would see him and hide from him, right? So Rabbi Yochanan sees that Rabbi Eliezer is, uh, is, is hiding from him. And the question is, which Rabbi Eliezer is this? So this is not the Rabbi Eliezer, the Tana that we talk about. This is Rabbi, some people say this is actually uh, Rabbi Elazar uh, ben, uh, ben Pedas, okay? So just, just to know, you know who this is, this isn't the other uh, Rabbi Eliezer that we're talking about here. Um, and so what happens? 
Va'amar halen tarte milchu hadin bevale aved bay. So Rabbi Yochanan says this Babylonian, he commits two, you know, sort of two offenses towards me, right? He did two things not nice to me. The first is he didn't ask me how he was doing. He didn't greet me. The mitmar, right? And he also, he hid from me. So Rabbi Yaakov Bar-Idi says to Rabbi Yochanan, he says, this is how we behave basically, right? In Babel, this is how we behave. That a person doesn't, you know, a younger person doesn't ask about the welfare of an older person. So in other words, he's saying to Rabbi Yochanan, don't be insulted by Rabbi Eliezer because he's doing what's customary that we don't, you know, sort of go out of our way to a younger person wouldn't dare, it wouldn't be respectful to ask an older person how they are. For they conduct themselves this way, according to these words. And then he quotes a pasuk, Youth would see me and conceal themselves. The age would the aged would rise and stand. So this is a pasuk from Eov Perik Chavtet Patzukhet, and Eov there is basically talking about you know how honored he was in a previous time of his life, and so you know that's what he's trying to to say to him. So what happens, right? Amar Mahu Salme. So in tr- sort of trying to get, you know, uh, Rav Yidi still wants, Rav Yaakov Bar Yidi still wants to get Rav Yochanan to calm down. And so he asks him a halachic question. So he says, what happens if somebody needs to pass in front of the Audra uh, idol, which I guess was some type of idol, right? And you don't want to pass in front of it because in a way it shows some type of respect towards, towards it. Amar ma'at pligle yakar. What? So Rav Yochanan says to him, how are you showing some kind of respect or deference to the idol. Avor kamuhi visami enuhi. Pass before it and rub its eyes. In other words, walk by it and like just don't pay any attention to it. Amar leis, Rav Yaakov bar says back to Rabbi Yochanan, Ya'ud Rabbi Eliezer avi velo avar kamech. So he says Rabbi Eliezer did the same thing, is that he didn't want to pass before you, right? Because Rabbi Eliezer wouldn't greet you according to the custom that he was upholding. So it would also be disrespectful if he just sort of walked by you and didn't say anything. So in other words, he's trying to use a halachic scenario and by having Rabbi Yochanan answer it a certain way, that's the way he's going to justify. He shouldn't be so upset by Rabbi Eliezer because it was a way Rabbi Eliezer was really trying to show him respect. Rabbi Eliezer, knowing that he couldn't greet him, that's why he hid. He wouldn't even pass by him because that would be even more disrespectful. Rabbi Yochanan still is going to go ahead and complain about Rabbi Eliezer, but Ode, Avid Hab Bavla, right? This is also what this Babylonian did that bothered me. Delo Amar Shmata Mishmei. He didn't repeat a teaching in my name. Nichnesu Lefanav Rabbi Ami Rabbi Asi. Rabbi Ami and Rabbi Asi came before Rabbi Yochanan, and now they're going to try to calm him down. Amrulo, they said to him, Rabbi, our teacher, okay? Kachaya Maase Bevet Akineset Shel Trisim. He says the following thing took place. In the coppersmith synagogue, uh, which apparently, according to the note that I have here, was in Tiberia, so they were having a discussion about a bolt with a knob on the end. So if people remember, this goes back to something that we learned in Eruven. I just want to comment that I hope people realize 
we've kind of done like a little bit enough of the DAF that now we're really starting to refer back to things that we learned on the DAF already. Like yesterday, we talked about a whole thing. I'm sucking. This discussion about the bolt with the knob at the end, you should remember it from a Reuven. It was around Kuf uh, Olive or something like that, where Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yossi, not the Rabbi Eliezer that we're talking about, disagree about whether you can use that bolt as a wedge on a door on Shabbat. So it, it, I think it's just cool to see that we're sort of a year into the top and some of these Gemaras are actually uh, coming, uh, are becoming familiar. Gemara goes on and says, Rabbi Eliezer for Rabbi Yossi, right? The Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yossi disagreed about. The disagreement between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yossi was so great over this that what happened, a Torah scroll was basically ripped in anger. And so what Ravami and Ravasi are basically saying to Rabbi Yochanan, don't be, don't, you don't want to get so, it's not worth it to be so upset. The Gemara here has a little sidebar and says, could you actually think that this is actually what happened? It, it doesn't mean that they actually purposefully ripped the Sefer Torah, but unintentionally, because they were so angry, you know, unintentionally, some type of act of tearing happened. Now, what exactly does this mean? So some of the Mepharshim say that it's almost uh, that they were tugging the Torah itself, right? You have Rabbi Eliezer on one side of Rabbi Yossi on the other side. And you, that's how they end up tearing it. You can picture like two kids fighting over a toy. A toy. Whether this is meant to be taken literal, I personally think this is more trying to say that when you fight this way, when you disagree with somebody so vehemently, in the end, you destroy Torah, right? It's not really a good way. It's not a good way to practice Torah. But then they go on, but it, but it seems to be that this actually was really literal. Then Ravami and Ravasi go on about the story. By Yashram Zakin Achad, there was an older sage there. For Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma Shemo, his name was Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma. Amar, he said when he saw all this anger, Tim Nehi, I will be amazed, Im Lohaya Beit HaKnesset Zeb Beit Avodazara, that if eventually this synagogue will not at one time actually become a, a house of Avodazara. So, in other words, he's trying to say that anger, it, it, it takes away, like Hashem is not in a place of anger, Torah is not in a place of anger. And so by sort of saying this to Rabbi Yochanan, they're basically trying to tell Rabbi Yochanan, don't be so angry. Don't be an angry person. This isn't going to be good. Now Rabbi Yochanan goes on, Rabbi Yochanan actually gets angrier. And he says, So he says, how is this, right? What, what he's upset about with Rabbi Eliezer, how do you compare this to two friends who are fighting with each other? Saying that what Rabbi Eliezer did to me is much worse than Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yossi fighting with each other over halacha. They're equals. But this, what Rabbi Eliezer did to me, this is even worse because Rabbi Eliezer is his student. He's not his colleague. And so for a Talmud to anger his Rebbe, that's really bad. And that does deserve anger. So now someone else tries to calm Rabbi Yochanan down. Nechmas Lefan of Rabbi Yaakov Varizi. So Rabbi Yaakov Varizi comes and he says the following. Amar le, ketiv, kacher siva. Hashem at Moshe Abdo, Kain Siva Moshe Yoshua. So he quotes another Pasuk here. Um, and this is a Pasuk is it, that's in Yoshua, Parakyot Aleph Pasuk Tedvav, chapter 11, verse 15, that says, As Hashem commanded Moshe his servant, so did Moshe command uh, Yehoshua. So we see from this that essentially Yoshua basically transmitted all the teachings that Moshe uh, taught B'nai Israel. The Chikol Divor Redivor Shaya Yoshua Yoshev Doresh Shaya Omer. 
So they said, do you think that when Yoshua taught all of the Torah that Moshe taught him, every single time he would sit and teach it, he would say, this is what Moshe said. And the answer being that that's rhetorical. Rather, Yoshua would sit and explain. And everybody understood that it was Moshe's teaching. So with you, Eliezer. Eliezer sits and he explains. And everyone knows that the Torah that he's teaching is your teaching. In other words, he doesn't need to actually say it by your name. Everyone knows that he's your student. And he doesn't always have to say, this is the Torah I learned for Rabbi Yochanan. Everyone's going to know that that Torah is connected with you. And so then finally, Rabbi Yochanan says, Amr Lahen, he says to them, So he says to Ravami Ravasi, how come you didn't know to make me come the way that your uh, friend, the son of Edi, did? Um, And then they, now the Gemara wants to know, but like really, why did he get so angry? Like, why is it that he was so insistent that this had to be said exactly in his name? But Rabbi Yochanan, my kule hides up divide the right? Why did it have to be in his name? And so now they learn something interesting about David Hamelah. Daft David Bikesh Aleha Rachamim. Even David Hamelah wanted this from Hashem. He wanted Rachamim in this area. So they quote here a pasuk from Tehillim, Perak Samach Aleph Pasukes, chapter 61, verse 5, which says that I should live in your tent forever and I will take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Do we think that when David HaMelech wrote this, he meant that he was going to live forever? Of course he knew he wasn't going to live forever. Rather, this is what David thought. Ribono Sha'olam. I should merit that after I die, basically, my words will always be said in synagogues and in study halls. Shimon ben Nizra b'shem Rabbi Yitzchak Amir. Shimon ben Nizra said in the name of Rabbi Yaakov, "Kol tamich hacham shorim davar halacha mipiv haolam hazeh sefatav rechushot imo ba kever." And I thought. This was very interesting, and it sort of relates it back to this discussion about the kever again. That when it's when a Talmud Chacham is quoted, his lips themselves, and quoted in this world, his lips themselves start to move in the grave. Um, and uh, and 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 then they go on to talk about this a little bit more. I was thinking about this in terms of the context of Torah Sheba Al and that it's interesting to see how important it was to Rabbi Yochanan that he be quoted and be quoted in his name. And I don't want to think that this was sort of an ego thing, but rather, you know, and he shows that this was even something that David Hamel was worried about. But I think if you were living at this time, and Rabbi Yochanan, we know, is sort of that transitional period between the Mishnah and the Gemara. And remember, none of these things, when we say the Mishnah was written down by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, who's Rabbi Yochanan's teacher, it doesn't mean it was written down, but there wasn't like a printing press. You didn't like go to a bookstore and pick up your book of um, your book of Mishnah. So I think what Rabbi Yochanan is upset about is once you don't quote the Rebbe, in a way, you're breaking the Masora. You're not saying what the chain actually is. And that's why quoting the Rebbe is important. 
And I think that's why the example they give to sort of calm him down that Rav Yaakov Bar-Idi gives is the one of Yoshua and Moshe, because that is the quintessential of where the chain starts, right? Moshe Kibel Torah Misenai, we know that from the first Mishnah in Perkei Avos. And then we have, you know, Yoshua is basically the first Talmud. He's the first person who's responsible for the transmission. And the point is, is that those who are transmitting from the Rebbe, they don't always have to quote it in their name. And so I think really the fear that Rebbe Yochanan has, it's not a fear of ego, but it's a fear of transmission. That if you forget to quote your Rebbe in a way, you're breaking the chain. And that by repeating the name of who you're quoting, and then you know who that Rebbe was, who that teacher's Rebbe was, and you know who that teacher's Rebbe was, you're going to be able to get all the way back to where the Mesoah starts, which is really from the time of, of, of Matan Torah. Um, so I just thought this was a very beautiful passage that at least for me, I, I think is very meaningful in terms of Mesorah and how Torah is actually transmitted and why was it so important that a Talmud give that type of respect to their teacher? So I want to say, I'm going to make a meta comment here because we've been talking about how Masachet Shkalim is has been really a great deal of halacha, both in terms of not just the mission itself, but even the Gemara on the halacha. And this whole piece, Yodena, I would say is quite the opposite of that in a way that is so rich. I feel like, you know, I've heard you say many times over the past year plus, you know, you this is something you want to come back to. This is something I want to come back to. I feel like there's just a, a lot of different component parts about Masora and all of this, you know, what does it mean to to say B'Shem Omro, to give credit where credit is due, all of these different elements. It's not one simple point. There's a lot to unpack here in ways that I think are very, very rich. And I just want to note that this connection here to Moshe Rabbeinu, I think is, of course, very timely in our, in our Pesach connection, right? That, you know, and of course, you know, you could learn any Masachet at any time, but the fact that it's here just is, it kind of jumped out at me as a as a nice connection to the season. Um, but here, I, I really feel like the, the ethics of it, I guess, you know, the, the meta halacha aspect that it takes us beyond the basics of halacha to, to who we're supposed to be, I thought were, was very valuable. Yeah, this is definitely, I, I haven't kept it as, up as much as I would have liked, but I'm sort of trying to keep some free running source sheet of just certain Gemara passages um, that I love this this passage I love. I feel like this this might be a Shavuot year later on. Well, that's our da- yes. oh, well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.